let's all stand together.
victory is yours. The lamb that has taken away the sins of the world. You have conquered death. And we have no reason to be afraid. Thank you for what you've done for us. And what a glorious day it is today. Because we have been allowed to run out of the grave. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. You know, one of the priorities of Westgate is to see people come to know Jesus Christ and have their lives forever changed. And uh, several years ago, we passed around a list of names. We invited anybody to, to put a name of someone that they were praying for to come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And so we passed that around. Trish, I'm going to hand that to you if you don't mind. I should have given it to Warren on the way down. But if you would just take that stack. Uh, I guess it's sanitized. It's safe to pass it around. Uh, just just pray over the virus there. But, but uh, you know, if you know of somebody that's not yet a Christian that you want added to that list, just put their first name on there. But what we like to do is just pass that around from time to time and let everybody just hold the, the stack of names and say, God, would you bring everyone who's named in this list to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Because that's, that is the greatest value, the greatest need of anybody's life is to know Christ. And as we continue this series, we come to John chapter 2 today, and we're reminded that our behaviors are shaped by our beliefs. What we believe will have a great bearing on the way that we behave and act. And a classic example of that would be the COVID virus that we're experiencing even now. What we believe about this particular virus will, in great part, drive the way that we act. If we're seriously concerned about it, we will practice very serious acts of protection. And if it's somewhat of a casual concern, then we'll have a very modest change in our lifestyle. What we believe about it will drive the way that we behave. And John knew this, and that's why he writes the Gospel of John. He is trying to shape our beliefs about who Jesus Christ is. The three previous Gospels have already been written. And John is writing this fourth gospel because he wants to give very special attention to who Jesus Christ is. He wants everyone to understand that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. And so we call this the great interruption because John is trying to get our attention. You know what an interruption is? When someone says, excuse me, excuse me, what are they doing? They're trying to get your attention so that they can address something with you. And John is trying to get our attention so he can address our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And today we're going to come to two interrupting events. We're calling it a wedding, which is real obvious, and a funeral. And those are found in John chapter 2. John is, is shifting gears in chapter 2. In John chapter 1, we have four different days in which there are various things that point to who Jesus Christ is. We have John the Baptist who, who says to the world, pointing at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in John chapter 2, he switches over and he starts using this thing that he calls signs. 
These are like markers that point us to who Jesus Christ really is. Helps us to understand that he is deity. He uses this word 17 different times in the Gospel of John. There are these signs that he wants us to see so that we can understand who Jesus Christ is. It's much like a laser pointer. He is pointing things out that we might not see otherwise. Now, in the, the first uh, service, there are plenty of people that are a little bit older, older like me and beyond. This may be a little bit tougher in this, this group here, but do, does anybody remember, or st still out there, ever use the magazine highlights and would have that hidden picture in there? Yeah, some of you are real old. You remember that. You're thinking, oh, I get that from my grandkids. But they would have this picture feature in there, and I don't, I, truthfully, I can't tell you what the rest of the magazine was about, but I go to the hidden picture. And you try to find those things, and once you found it, it seems so obvious. But it's kind of hard to find initially. And what John is saying is, I want you to see these things about who Jesus Christ is and to recognize that he really is the Son of God. So we're going to look at two interrupting events that are signs pointing to who Jesus Christ is. And the first one is a wedding. It's found in John chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Uh, let's read it together. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each one held about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the very best of the wine first, and then they use the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the very best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The wedding is a sign, not just the turning of the water into wine, but the wedding itself. It's significant that Jesus would begin his ministry in the Gospel of John at a wedding. The marital relationship is God's creation. It's not just a sociological construct. God created the marriage union to be a picture, an icon, a sign, a pointer to man's relationship with God, to point out the significance of God's relationship with man. Think about it for just a moment. If you are married or you hope to be married or have been married, you know that there's no more significant relationship than that of a husband and a wife. If you're a husband or a wife, you can think of other relationships you have, even relationships with your kids. Kids, I hate to break this to you, but you're not the most significant relationship. It's that of a husband and a wife. And I hope that every one of us that are married would say that, and I hope that everyone that aspires to be married would say that. 
And that's why God used it. From the very beginning, he created man and woman to be in union of marriage, starting the very beginning of creation. All through the Old Testament, God uses the picture of marriage as a pointer to the relationship that we can share with God. And that's why when people were unfaithful to God, he would relate about their unfaithfulness to him. And so here is Jesus starting his ministry to say, I have come to allow you to experience the most significant relationship of all, and that is relationship with God. So here they are at this wedding, very big event. Weddings were uh, much more extravagant than they are today. We think of a, a wedding and then a big reception, and I will attest as being a minister, more planning goes into the reception than it does to the wedding. I don't know how many times I've sat with a couple and it's like, oh yeah, whatever on the service, but here's what we're going to have for the DJ and what we're going to be playing and, and all that. Well, a little bit different back then. You had the arrangement, and that could take place as early as childhood, in which, which a, a, a boy and a girl were paired off by the parents that thought, you know, this is a good family. We, we really need to kind of sit close to them. And they would arrange for that. And then as time would go on, as it got closer to the age of the, the time of being married, then they would have the betrothal. And that was a time in which the couple was considered to be married. I mean, if anything happened and they, they separated, it was the same as divorce. And then you would have the actual exchange of the vows and the commitment and the establishment of the covenant. And then there would be this reception. And it would last for like a week. It wasn't just three hours. I've been to some receptions back there in our gym that felt like they were a week long. But, I mean, just between you and me, I'm thinking, man, if I just got married, I'm ready to leave here pretty soon. But at any rate, this thing goes on and on and on. Well, this is a, a week of this stuff. And what's unique about it is that you have different guests coming on different days and making sure that everybody is accommodated. And so they're, they're coming in, and in the course of this thing, they run out of wine. Now, there's always a big question in this particular piece of history, this miracle of Jesus about, about drinking and alcohol and all that. And this is, this is really not the place to make the point about that. I think you can even see today just the, the dangers of alcohol. There's no question about that. We need to be very guarded. God's Word says, do not be drunk with wine. Be very guarded in the practice of any type of alcohol. And I, why not just use this a moment to say, I make enough mistakes all by myself without having my mind impaired by alcohol, and that's why I've chosen to never drink and never have in all my life. That's not a big statement of applause. It's just I have never had alcohol in all my life, and I've still made a whole bunch of mistakes. So, can't imagine otherwise. But anyway, here is Jesus, and they run out of wine, which is a really big deal. We might think, well, okay, that's not that significant, but the problem is, this is a real embarrassment. It is a social indictment uh, to this particular couple. And believe it or not, there could actually be legal ramifications for this particular issue. And uh, here's one thing I do like about this. Not really that I've married off our daughter and our son is still coming. Uh, but, but back then, the groom paid for everything. The groom's family paid for everything. It wasn't a responsibility of the bride. And so... They have run out of wine, and why, does, why is Mary interested in this? Well, because Cana is so close to Nazareth, there is good speculation that this is probably a, a family member, a relative, a uh, friend that is getting married, and Mary is helping out, much like the weddings that we have around here where people, you know, we pile together and we work to help each other on weddings. And so she's concerned about what's going on, and she says to Jesus, they have no more wine. 
He's the go-to guy. I mean, there are no convenience stores, convenience stores close by to pick up something here. And so she says they have no more wine, like he's going to solve the problem. And he says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, on the initial pass, that sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Woman. Well, that's a, a term of, of great respect. It's used to speak to queens and women of great distinction. So Jesus is not being rude when he says, woman, why do you involve me? In fact, he will use the exact same word when he's speaking to Mary when he's on the cross. And he's saying, woman, behold your son, John, that will take care of you. It's not a term of disrespect, but it's also a statement to say our relationship has changed. I may be your son, but no longer can you tell me what to do. It's not like what we might hear today. Mom, it's him being very, very, very respectful in saying our relationship has changed. My hour has not yet come. That's talking about his glorification of what he did on the cross, the sinless son of God dying for our sins. And that word hour, we'll see that five different times in the gospel of John that points to the time which Jesus says, my hour hasn't come. It's not time for me to die for everyone. And then three times we'll see John use that word to say, my hour has come. It's time for the sacrifice. And mother, then, then, then Mary responds in a very unique way. She says, do whatever he tells you. Because she knew that whatever he said might sound kind of weird. Like, why don't you take those water pots over there and just pawn them off as wine? You see, she knew that whatever he said, just do it. She had experienced the virgin birth. She didn't have her wedding. She didn't get this opportunity. She had experienced the Holy Spirit conceiving the Son of God through her. She remembered what Gabriel said, nothing is impossible with God. She had watched her son grow up uniquely different from all the other children in their family. Sinless. Perfect. So she says, do whatever he says. Six stones, stone uh, water jars. They held about 20 to 30 gallons. They're used for ceremonial washing. It wasn't for like washing your hands to get the virus off your hands. It was ceremonial just to say that I'm demonstrating that I'm purifying myself didn't really do any good. It was just a statement of trying to be obedient to God. And, and what Jesus is saying in the midst of this event, things are changing. The old covenant, the old wine, the law, that's changing. I'm making something brand new by giving myself for the redemption of the world. And so those guys went, and they filled them up. And uniquely, these are not like slaves, typical slaves that you would see in a household. Because this is a wedding, and every, every family is kind of on deck to help out here, the word there is actually the same word that we use for deacons. So these are like friends and family members that are serving. And it says that the guys who are serving, who got the word to fill up the water all the way to the top, they take some of the water, what used to be water, it's now wine, Jesus didn't do anything right over the water. He just told him what to do, and it happened. And what he is demonstrating is his authority over all creation. 
that he can transform anything. If we were to take a water bottle and set it up here and have you come up here and pray over it and think about it and say whatever you wanted to it, it doesn't matter how long you're here, nothing's going to change in that water. When you pull the lid off, it's still going to be water. Jesus didn't even go over to the water. He just told him what to do, and it turned into wine. And what John is trying to say here is this is the Son of God who has authority over all of creation. This is the same one who will have authority even over death when he dies because he will be resurrected just as we sang about. Well, they take you to the bridegroom after they've discovered it as such good wine. And again, the question here is Jesus is not saying like, you know, everybody's drunk now, so it really doesn't matter. Their taste buds have been calmed. They're fixated on other things. But all of a sudden, they're, they're caught by surprise that this is the very best, save for last. What's being stated here is Jesus will give us the very best. And as Christians, we can always believe that the very best is yet to come. No matter what you're facing today, no matter how heartbroken or disappointed or discouraged you might be, the best is yet to come. Doesn't mean that your circumstances are going to smooth out. It's just that what Jesus has to promise is the very, very best. So we have this wedding that is a sign that helps us to understand that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And, and understand again, John is, is picking and choosing from his years of following after Jesus, and he's chosen certain specific pieces of history to tell us about. And so now we go to the second one, and that's when Jesus cleanses the temple. Join me again in, in John chapter 2. We'll look at verse 13. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And that's a very interesting statement there. You know, sometimes people wonder, you know, is, could the Bible be trusted? Just that one little statement, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, helps us to see that John understood. This is not some writer from the outside. He understood exactly what takes place in Palestine. And the fact that when you were going to Jerusalem, you're walking up to Jerusalem. It's 2,500 feet above sea level. And when Jesus was going from the area of Galilee to Jerusalem, he was going up. Just a little reminder of the validity and the truth of Scripture. It says, in the temple, the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it was written in Scripture, Psalm 69, zeal for the house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign, there's that word again, what sign can you show us to prove your authority for doing all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied scoffingly saying, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. We come to the funeral and you're wondering, how is this the funeral? But it's the funeral because Jesus is saying goodbye to the old 
ways of connecting with God, to the old covenant. He is beginning the process of burying it. What's taking place here, it's the Passover, which is a huge event that celebrated God's deliverance of his people from Egypt thousands of years previously. I shouldn't say thousands, almost 2,000. Long time. And as they would walk to Jerusalem each year for this annual festival, it would be, Jerusalem would be filled with so many people. There'd be like 250,000 men. Potentially as many as 3 million people would come to Jerusalem. And you had the temple complex, which is about 35 acres. And it was designed with not only the temple itself, the holy place and the holy of holies, but you had the, the, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of Israel, the court of the priest. You had the porch, huge complex. And what was taking place whenever someone would come to Passover to celebrate, they would have to bring a sacrifice. But the religious leaders had turned it into a, a bazaar. And I use the word B-I, bazaar, but it's actually a bazaar. It's called Annas Bazaar. Annas was the chief priest who had been deposed by the Romans. And he, would, he had established in the temple courts this huge enterprise of commerce. You think you have 250,000 males coming into Jerusalem. They all have to pay the annual temple tax, but they had to pay it with the right money, Jewish money. So they would have this monetary exchange system set up where you exchange money for the right temple to temple tax, the right coin, which would char which cost you quite a bit of money. And if you were bringing an animal, they examined to see if it was a perfect animal, unblemished, as Scripture would say, and they always seemed to find a blemish on the animal. But they would say, this is your lucky day. You can exchange your blemished animal for an unblemished animal for a little bit more money. And so they would take the animal that was blemished and they would put it back into the flock. They would give them an unblemished animal. And some guy would come by a few minutes later and they would take the animal they just got from that guy and they would sell it as an unblemished animal to someone else. It was a racket. They had completely desecrated the temple. And that's why Jesus would come in and he would cleanse the temple, chase out all the people that were causing all the commotion. Could you imagine being in the temple trying to pray and worship when you have all of this commotion going on? The amount of conversation and talking and yelling and the frustration of the people who come and they have to pay so much to get their money exchanged. They have to pay so much to get another animal. And then all of the animals making noise. I've been waiting for this point of our service all till now. I'm so excited about this part of the service. This is your moment. This is your time. What I want you to do is take us back to that moment. And I want all of you here to make your very best animal sound when I raise my hand. And when I pull my hand down, enough of the animal sounds, okay? Your best animal sound, maybe a cow, maybe a sheep. When we were in Haiti, Rachel had this incredible ability to make a goat sound. Maybe you can make a goat sound. Maybe you're like a camel. I don't know what it is, but... Or a dove. You ready? When I raise my hand, your very best animal sound. <laughs> you can imagine in the midst of all that, trying to pray and worship 
And that's what the temple had become. And so Jesus, not in a fit of fury, not in a rage, it tells us that, that he, he made a whip. Now, if he just flew off the handle, he would just start running through there doing all that stuff. But you see the way that his anger is measured. Probably took some of the ropes that were holding the, the animals and he, and he wove it into a whip, not to try to hurt people. Do you know how when you start swinging stuff around, people get out of the way? It gives you a little bit more authority to move people. And he, and he started moving the animals out and he started turning over the tables. And who knows exactly how he turned the tables off. But I, don't, I don't think he was like a raging maniac just slamming the tables. I think he was, he was interrupting the business to say, this is enough. You have turned my father's house. You've desecrated it. And he drives them all out, completely interrupts Annas Bazaar. And then they want to know, by what authority do you have to do all this? Very interesting statement about human nature there. They're asking him, what gives you the authority to do what you just did? To try to make the temple more worshipful. But they don't give any self-examination to themselves. God never intended for the temple to be used like it was. They were clearly in the wrong, but they didn't want to look at that. They want to look at Jesus. They said, you give us a sign. If you think you're Mr. Mr. All That, you think you're the Messiah, give us a sign to prove that. Jesus said, you want a sign? The way it's said in the original language could be, you really want a sign? Yeah, I'll give you a sign. You tear this thing down? tear the temple down. And the words that he uses are very significant. You tear the temple down. In three days, I'll raise it up. And they're thinking, you got to be kidding. Because the temple complex, about 35 acres, it had been in the process of being built for 46 years under Herod. Started in about 20 BC. And Herod was restoring the old temple from after the exile that Zerubbabel had, had built. There was nothing like the temple of Solomon. And Herod was starting with that. And for 46 years, they've been building out this temple. And it was magnificent. It was unbelievable. As you approached Jerusalem and you saw the pinnacle of the temple and the walls and the glistening of the gold coming off the temple, it was just absolutely incredible. This was the pride of Israel. They despised Herod. This was the pride of Israel. There was no place like it. This was the crowning jewel of all of Israel. And in fact, the building process for the temple would continue on until just six years before the Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And we're voting on the next 50 here. That was like the next 80 when they were building the temple. But they didn't understand that Jesus said, if you destroy this holy of holies... I will raise it up in three days. Referring to himself. Referring to the resurrection. Referring to the fact that he had authority even over death itself. They would use that same statement against him when Jesus went to trial. Talking about the fact that he would tear down the temple. You know, when we look at all of this, these two signs... I think we go back and look at just two critical things. First of all, it's a recognition 
that Jesus can transform anyone or anything. What is it in your life and my life that needs to be transformed? If he can take water and turn it into wine, he can transform anything. And he does. And then the second is, God's word says that when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we become a temple in which the Spirit of God resides. Is there anything in your temple or my temple that needs to be cleansed? That needs to be chased out? That needs to be given over to the Lord? You know, when Mary said, do whatever he says, she recognized that if you do whatever Jesus says, good things will happen. And then we see just how the wine was the best of all the wine. God will give us the very best. But the pathway to getting there is repentance and obedience, allowing God to cleanse us of everything that shouldn't be there. And that begins with the relationship to Jesus Christ. God loves every one of us. He loves everybody and created all of us to have a relationship with him. But just like what we saw in the temple, sin, our sin, separates us from God. And the only one that can bridge the gap between the two is Jesus Christ. Thankfully, Jesus Christ can change us now and for all of eternity. And it begins by repenting of our sins, turning from our sins, and humbly inviting Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of our life. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray in the next few moments, you will pray a prayer similar to the one that I'm about to lead us in. And you'll make Christ the Lord of your life. If you're already a Christian, my hope and prayer is this, is that you will say, Lord Jesus, what do you want? What do you want to remove from my life, my life, to bring the very best in? So let's pray together. God, we, we thank you for these signs that remind us that you are not just a religious leader, a great teacher, someone that had good things to say, but you are truly the Son of God. John's life was so dramatically transformed that he couldn't help but try to convince everyone of your holiness and the fact that you are the only Son of God. Lord, if someone today listening in this room or via live stream, has never committed their life to Christ, I pray that this would be the day that they would say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all of my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Well, for those of us who are committed to you in relationship through Jesus Christ, pray that this would be a day in which we just again ask ourselves, Lord, is there anything that needs to be driven out of the temple of my life that I need to repent of, turn from, and allow you to fill me with the very best? Help us to be obedient. Help us to take the wisdom of Mary to heart and do whatever you say. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. During this time of worship, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And 
opportunity for us to just continue to worship and reflect on, on what we've experienced here during this hour. And if you feel like you need someone to pray with you, I'll be standing over at the crosses. Uh, if you want to commit your life to Christ, didn't quite understand what we were talking about, I'd love to visit with you there or out in the atrium after the service. You'll find a communication card right in front of you in the pew. And if you want to fill that out and just leave it in the offering plate, we'll get in touch with you this week. Any decision that might help you move closer to God, we want to help facilitate that. So let's stand together and let's worship as we sing. Have a great week.